Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? All right, there's coffee right outside. (laughs) That's not going to work. All right. Well, I just want to say welcome, whether you're in the room here or you are uh, out on the internet or you're watching later, we're glad that you're here. Glad that you're joining us this morning. I'd love to just pray for us before we get started. Well, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to get into your word and thank you for your word and the truth it reveals to us. I thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts right down to the core of us. I'm grateful for your ability to use it in shaping and teaching and growing us and calling us closer to yourself. Lord, I know that my words have little value, but your words have great value. So I invite you to speak this morning. Would you teach us? Would you grow us? Would you challenge us? Would you help us to love you more? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My name is James. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, I would love to just spend a little time kind of catching you up if you haven't been here or you've been sleeping or whatever else. Uh, So we are in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, and we have been going through the whole thing, um, which has been really sweet uh, to go through. And over the last uh, few weeks, I would say the drama has uh, really Increased. In fact, it's the kind of drama that we write uh, shows and movies and books and things about. And what I mean by that uh, is that there's a lot going on in this, this moment that we're about to step into and that we were kind of just coming out of. Uh, last week, as Chad was preaching in the middle of uh, Luke 20, we saw Jesus having this exchange yet again uh, with some religious leaders. And basically, yet again, they're trying to kind of trap trick him, trap him up, and he kind of turns tables on them and makes them look kind of silly, and I love that. Um, And the the drama is kind of high at this point for a lot of reasons. So let me share a few with you. Number one, this is Passion Week that we're in. So if you don't know what Passion Week is, it's the week preceding Jesus's uh, death and resurrection. And so uh, we see that kind of start with the, the triumphant entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and people are freaking out that he's there and they're laying, laying their coats down on the ground and palm branches and it's this big thing. They're shouting Hosanna. It's a big deal, right? In fact, the crowds in general are really amped up about Jesus at this point. They're pretty excited about who he is and what is he going to do and oh my gosh and all this. They're, they're, kind of, they're kind of all about finding out what this new thing is, right? And so they're pretty excited about Jesus. Meanwhile, the religious leaders couldn't really be any less excited about Jesus. In fact, they are reaching sort of a tipping point with Jesus. They've already sort of committed themselves to the idea of killing him and this week, they're going to pull it off, right? And so this is the final time that Jesus is going to address the religious leaders. This, this conversation that is going on right now, as we are in, in the, the midst of Luke here, the conversation happening between Jesus and the religious leaders, this is the last time he's going to address them before he dies on the cross and is resurrected. And again, they just tried to make a fool out of him. 
and failed miserably. So they're probably kind of embarrassed. They're burning from that. And a really good clue <laughs> that things are, uh, are really amped up is the fact that the political factions, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are united against Jesus. Okay, uh, to put that in perspective, think about how hard it would be to get Democrats and Republicans on the same side of one issue, <laughs> right? They're mad. They're so angry. They're actually on the same page with each other, which is incredible, right? And so to make matters more intense, Jesus has just pointed out that when David talks about the Messiah, he calls, he calls him Lord. And nobody is missing that Jesus is talking about himself here. Everybody knows at this point that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. So they caught what he just said. I am greater than David. Tensions are thick. The drama is intense as we step into this. And so now Jesus is going to turn and he's going to pinpoint the scribes. And so I want to take a quick moment just to explain, because I don't know if you're, maybe you're like me. <laughs> when I see scribes, Pharisees, priests, high priests, all that stuff, I get a little mixed up by all those different groups. So let me kind of run down what those groups are, okay? So you have two sort of political factions that are also religious factions, because we're talking about a theocracy here, we're talking about a, a country whose politics and religion are intertwined by God's design, right? And so when, when you talk about a political group, you also talk about a religious group and vice versa. So we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? And they are two uh, major political religious groups. And then there's people that don't belong to either group, okay? So that's one sort of spectrum, if you will. And then you have the different roles, the different uh, jobs or positions that people have. And so you have things like the chief priests, right? And then you have regular priests and Levites and scribes. These are all basically just sort of different positions that people have. The Levite thing being a little different because that's heritage, but you get the gist. And so basically when you start to see him calling out these different groups, they each have different functions, but they're all sort of uniformly having issues, right? They're uniformly kind of corrupt and missing the point. And so as he goes after the scribes specifically, let's just talk a little bit about what a scribe is, because I, I think that's, that's kind of helpful to understand. Now, most of us probably are aware that scribes are people who like read and write, and they, they usually are like copying manuscripts, right? That's kind of the, the common thing you think of when you think of a scribe as someone who is going to make copies of, you know, things since they didn't have printing presses, right? But there's more to scribes, particularly in this time and place, See, scribes have become the experts of the law. They're, they're, they're good readers and writers, and they have to really study hard because of their trade, especially the way that uh, religious manuscripts were copied. There were all kinds of rules, and they had to, to be very precise and all that. And so 
God had used scribes in multiple places in the Old Testament for good things, but the scribes have kind of somehow gotten a certain level of elevation. They figured out a way to kind of get themselves some political power and some religious power and some uh, financial power and those kind of things in their work. And so what they have effectively become and what Jesus describes them in in one of the Gospels is lawyers, they're, they're effectively lawyers. They're, they're people who know the law front and back, and they would answer questions of the law. And in a lot of ways, that's a very practical, helpful thing, but can be a little bit of a problem if you have corrupt human beings doing that. And so they're also taking advantage of this position, this power, this influence that they have. And that's kind of what we're stepping into as Jesus starts to speak to them. So it says this, at Luke 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So it was probably around this time that Jesus would have also been pronouncing his seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. If you're familiar with what I'm talking about, great. If not, that's okay. We're not really going to get into it right now. But basically, Jesus listed out seven things he held against the Pharisees and would occasionally include the scribes in there. But look at the, look at the picture that Jesus is casting here of the scribes, right? So, so first of all, it says, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, so he basically was speaking very loudly for everyone to hear, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, uh, this is a silly picture from our, from our side of things because bathrobe is what first comes to my mind when I hear that, and which would be hilarious. Um, but obviously, he's talking about a cultural uh, thing here. He's talking about these, these fancy long robes that were a, a sign of uh, affluence and influence. Um, and there may have been a religious context. There's some de debate about that. But basically, they were very showy robes. Right, they were, they, it was like really nice showy clothing, okay? So they love to walk around in their fancy clothing. They love greetings in the marketplaces. And this is not like, hey, Bill, right? Like not that kind of a greeting, right? They love being recognized in their status in the marketplace is what we're getting at here. They, they, they like to be known. They like to be seen. They like people saying, oh, hello, scribe, you know, like, very, very prestigious, well-known kind of thing. It's a, it's a showing off thing, right? Similar to the long robes. And the best seats in the synagogues, which they would have gotten by money and influence, right? And again, status symbol. And the places of honor at feasts, again, a status symbol, right? If you were put in the, in the greater position of honor, you were more important, who devour widows' houses, and this one to me is the most uncomfortable statement out of all of them. First of all, that word devour is uh, an intense, kind of uncomfortable word, right? You drill down on it in the Greek, it, you get this idea of consuming greedily, you know, like, like this, you know, you know how sometimes like if, if you put like a, a cake in front of a one-year-old, the way they like just kind of like face plant into it and it's like everywhere and they're just sucking that thing down, right? That's what comes to mind in this. 
right? It's this, this like uncomfortable gorging thing, right? And widows houses specifically, and, and Jesus calls up widows specifically for a reason here, because widows in the Old Testament are the most protected class because they are the most vulnerable class. Over and over again, the Old Testament calls attention on the protection and provision of widows because widows had no way of making money in their society. There was no way for them to take care of themselves. They were fully dependent on their culture to take care of them. And so again and again, God would call attention on them and say, hey, take care of the widows and the orphans. So the fact that the scribes are devouring the houses of widows is disgusting. It's a, it's a real picture of what's going on. And, uh, you know, scholars can't quite agree on what this might have looked like. Maybe the scholars, or the, the scribes were, uh, you know, convincing the widows to allow them to kind of have control of their estate and were managing things for them, but taking a big, you know, scrape off the top. Or maybe it was that they were ingratiating themselves to the, to the widows and they were, you know, either being gifted things or were kind of trying to work their way into relationships so they can have one way or another, they were very carefully stealing from the widows. That's, that was the bottom line. And for pretense, they make long prayers. And this is really a picture at the end, right? This is a picture of the whole thing. Right there. Big fake religion. Big fake religion. Long pretense of, of prayers, right? They stand up, look good in front of everyone, pray those prayers. You know, try to sound really impressive in what they're praying, go on and on and on. The problem is, is the heart dead. They, they, they have absolutely no real heart or care for God, right? And, and we see that in that other passage that I was mentioning about the seven woes because Jesus uses the phrase hypocrites, blind guides, right? They, they think that, you know, they are the epitome of, of God's religion, right? And yet they are missing it completely. They, their religion is really nothing more than a way for them to get what they want. That's it. A way for them to get what they want. Whether that's social status or influence or money, whatever it is. Eternal life. There's, there's no real heart to it. It's just for show. Their faith is hollow. It's like when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. I think that's such a, that's such a good picture. These, these tombs they had in Jerusalem that were really pretty on the outside. Whitewashed, looked really nice on the outside. Inside, dead man's bones. That's what's going on here. And Jesus says they'll be judged harsher. And the reason's pretty obvious. is because they, out of all people, know the law the best— and should be able to steer clear of this. And they're teaching other people this. Not only are they messing themselves up, they're messing the other people up that they're converting. And so they'll be judged harsher. 
So I think the uh, chapter break here is a little unfortunate. Uh, Some of us may know that the chapters and verses, they were added later to the Bible just to give us a point of reference. So I can say, turn to chapter 21 and you know what I'm talking about, right? But those weren't originally in the manuscripts. And I think this particular placement for this chapter break is a little unfortunate because I think Jesus is trying to paint, or, or perhaps Luke is trying to paint a very clear picture here for us between that picture of religion and a different picture. So let's go to chapter 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now it doesn't say this, and we don't know for sure, Jesus might be talking about some scribes here. Scribes would have been pretty wealthy. So they might be the the people that Jesus is observing putting money in in the offering box, or it's just some rich people. And it says, he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, which have as little value as you would expect them to, right? Similar to our copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Consider the, the, this incredible contrast between the scribes that he was just describing and this poor widow. There's a, there's a drastic difference between these two sets of people, right? She gave all that she had to live on, right? And they were probably giving because they were told to, but they were just, you know, kind of doing what they had to do, given the, you know, bare minimum kind of, well, I don't really need this chunk. I can, you know, wasn't, wasn't a big deal for them. They were, they were effectively just following the rules. This, this widow, though, offers everything, all that she has, which should ask the question in your mind, what is going on with this widow that is so much different from these scribes? She's not an expert in the law. What is different about her? What's going on in her heart that is so different from the scribes? Now, before we dive into that, I want to just address the elephant in the room, which is, why money, Jesus? Why, why does Jesus take so much time to talk about money? Because he does. He talks about money a lot, actually. When you read the Gospels, it's surprising how much money comes up. And it, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Like, well, okay, we can talk about everything. Let's not talk about money. I don't wanna, let's not go there. But why? Why does he talk about it? And I, I think, well, first, <laughs> first, let me put a little disclaimer here. <laughs> so we're just going through the book of Luke. We've been going through the book of Luke, and this is the next part of the book of Luke, okay? And I know the timing is pretty funny, because uh, just a few weeks ago, we were sharing that we're under budget. It's, it's not by plan that we're on this passage. No, <laughs> we haven't designed this or anything like that. It's just, that's what happens next in Luke, and we're going to talk about it, right? We're not going to just skip over it or whatever else. It's worth talking about. But I also want to say, there wouldn't actually be a reason for us to plan that. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but we are now 15% over budget, which is a big deal. Yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> 
That's really cool. It's really cool that, that we are now 15% over budget. And the thing that I love about that most, I, I don't personally have an investment in the budget. I don't have to manage the budget. I don't have to think about the budget, anything else. Chad has to do all that. <laughs> For me, the thing I like most about that is, is in my mind, that equates to a 15% increase in responding to Jesus. That, that's really sweet to me. That is really, really cool. A 15% increase in responding to Jesus. I just, I just think that's really sweet. And so I want to celebrate that, uh, that it seems like a lot of people have already sort of engaged with the topic of money with Jesus, and that's awesome. We're still going to talk about that. So why does Jesus talk about money? Why does, he, why does he make such a big deal out of talking about money? I think it's a clue. I think it's a clue to what's going on in our hearts. I think it's a picture of maybe what we care about. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus in Matthew 6 during the Sermon on the Mount explains it this way. So let me, let me just quote him. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now catch this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think if we think about this practically, we can identify that's true. Okay? Easy example. When you pick up a new hobby, what are you generally inclined to do with that hobby? Spend some money on it, right? Because you're excited about it. You're excited about the new hobby, you're going to spend some money on it, right? Or I like to eat, so I spend more money on eating than I should. <laughs> right? Like what the things that we're excited about or passionate about or just need or whatever else, that's where our treasure goes. And I would say the reverse is also true. The things that we tend to put our money into, we kind of invest into, right? We invest our hearts into a little bit. And so I'd say Jesus calls us to both show where our hearts are and to invest our hearts where they ought to be, right? That's, that's kind of that where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, it shows where our hearts are at. It also calls us to invest our hearts to where they should be. We have a phrase that we use now that's kind of like this. Put your money where your mouth is. Right? right? It's the phrase we use that we, when someone's like, you know, talking nah, 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 about whatever. And you're like, ah, okay, I'll believe it when I see your money go there. Why do you think we have that phrase? It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I think that's why Jesus talks about money is because it's a, a, a heart clue. It's a, a way that we direct our heart. It's a way that our heart indicates where it's at, right? And here's an important note on that idea. The, the desire to give, to be generous is a gift. That's a gift from God. The desire to do those things is a gift from God. It's not in our nature, right? Natural me, flesh me. I don't want to give money away. I want to keep it. I want to spend it on things I want to spend it on. It's for me, right? It's a gift to want to give it away. So let me just add another thought here. Jesus does not want our money. In fact, he doesn't need our money. There's a thousand cattle on a thousand hills, right? He's the creator of all things. 
provider of all things. He does not need our money. He wants our whole lives. He wants our whole hearts. Not just the little piece of money. He wants everything. He calls us to lose our lives for him. To take up our cross daily. To die and be reborn in him. He wants it all. And so when he starts talking about money, that's really just a small fragment, a small picture of the total thing. Because he calls us to die. He calls us to be born in him. He calls us to give him everything. And so as we do that, and as we start to, to grow in a desire to give, because it's a gift, we get to experience the gift of being able to give to people or to God, right? We get to see uh, an opportunity to return a portion of what God has given us because everything is his, all the resources we have, everything we have, every breath we have is his. And so when we turn around and say, God, here, you can have some of this. What we're really just saying is here, God, thanks for the loan, Right? Like, this is yours anyways. Let me return a portion of it to say, hey, thank you. When, when, we, when we give, we get to rejoice as giving becomes a joy for us. When we give, we get to trust and count on him. When we give, we get to care about the things he cares about. Right? There is a cool experience in giving. There's a cool layer of discipleship and following Jesus and trusting in him that we get to experience in giving, right? The widow laid everything out on the table. It was all she had to live on and she just trusted that God was gonna take care of her. I guarantee that was an experience of trust and faith for her that had long-term ramifications. Why did the widow give all that she had? She loved him more than anything she had. She loved him. She loved him more than her very life and she trusted him. And so she gave all she had to live on. And I, I love that when Jesus says not, he doesn't, he doesn't just say, I think the translation kind of misses it a little bit because this is more than any of them. But really that phrase is more than all of them put together. That's how much she gave. Because she gave all she had to live on. So she laid out her life before God. She offered him everything. I want to invite the band back up. So as we, as we start to close, I want to ask you a two-part question. The first one is, does God have everything for me, my whole life, all of me? Am I willing to give him everything? And this might be a question you've never really thought about before. This is what he calls us to, a total sacrifice of everything, right? A total laying down of my life. Some of us might be going, why would I do that? Maybe nobody's ever asked that question to you before. 
Or maybe you've simply never heard why it is we gather in a church on Sundays. Here's why. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And he knows what is ultimately best for you. So much better than you possibly could. No matter how smart you think you are. And here's the truth. Each and every one of us, every single one of us, have offended a holy God again and again. Sinned against him. It's not really hard. It's in our nature. And again and again, we've effectively given him the middle finger spit in his face. Saying, I know better than you. I'm going to do it my way. And a holy and just God looks on that and says, I have to do something about this. We know that justice is important. That's why we have a justice system. We punish wrongdoing. God being ultimately good and perfect has a perfect sense of justice. And when he looks on sin, he says that must be punished. And the punishment is hell. And that's where each of us would be going. And that's where the story would end if not for that first part. God loves you more than you can imagine. And that is why Jesus died on a cross. So that he could pay for your sin. So you wouldn't have to. When Jesus died on the cross, he opened a way. Because God loves us, does not want to send us to hell, but is just and is good, will not just pass over sin, and his solution is to send his son to pay. And his son went willingly. And if you will surrender your whole life to him, lay down your entire life to him, he will pay for your sins and exchange it for eternal life. He will pay the penalty that you should have paid so that you can experience eternal life, not just in heaven later, which by the way is going to be amazing. But even now, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. God has a perfect design for how life ought to be. And when we receive Jesus's life and start walking in God's way of doing that life, guess what? It's abundant. There's a reason why Jesus calls us to lay everything down. He wants us to love him above everything else. He wants us to trust him above everything else because he knows what's best for us. He has better plans for us than we have for ourselves. And so if you've never laid down your life to Jesus, consider doing it today. And if you have, Consider asking, Lord, is there anything I'm holding back from you in my life? Is there anything that's off limits? That part's mine. Because he calls us to lay it all down at his feet. And so along with that, that second question, ask, am I willing to talk to Jesus and hear from him 
about everything I have, everything I am, everything I love, everything I enjoy? Am I willing to listen to him about those things? Am I willing to talk to him about those things? So Jesus has a perfect plan for how you'll spend your time, your money, your talents, your relationships, everything. But you have to actually talk to him, hear from him and listen when he talks to you. He knows what's best for all of us. It says he's working all things for the good of those who love him. We have to trust him. We have to actually trust him with everything. And so ask yourself, am I trusting him with everything? And if not, make a change right now. This isn't about me or anybody else. There's no reports to give, anything like that. This is just between you and God. Your resources, your everything, that's between you and God, no one else. So talk to him. This is an opportunity, not a burden. In fact, the way that Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, he says, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Catch that. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not, oh, okay, well, how much have I got? Not, oh gosh, I feel bad now. I guess I should. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, a joyful giver, a giver who is excited to bring the gift. That widow was. All she had to live on and she was excited to do it. She was excited to lay it down at God's feet because she loved him and she trusted him. So don't do it for the wrong reasons. Do it out of joy. Let's pray. Father, I know that the topic of money can often be difficult for us. I also know the topic of laying down our lives can be difficult for us. Mostly for me, I think it's a lack of trust. Thinking that you're some, for some reason gonna take away good things but I know you are the good gift giver. And when you ask something of us, you do it because it's for our good. So would you help us to stay surrendered to you? Would our whole lives be laid down at your feet? Everything we have, everything we want, everything we are, our relationships, our resources, all of it. Would you speak to us about how we spend those things? Would you help us to do it. Trust you and do it with joy. It's a beautiful thing that we get to serve the living God. It's a beautiful thing that we get to offer you the things you have given us and trust you to take care of us. So would you direct and guide us, our hearts? You help us not to do any giving out of compulsion or guilt or whatever else, but simply because we're overjoyed Thank you, Lord, for the way that you are growing our hearts to be more like yours. 
And I trust that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. Amen.